This episode is brought to you by Progressive Insurance. Whether you love true crime or comedy, celebrity interviews or news, you call the shots on what's in your podcast queue. And guess what? Now you can call them on your auto insurance too with the Name Your Price tool from Progressive. It works just the way it sounds. You tell Progressive how much you want to pay for car insurance and they'll show you coverage options that fit your budget. Get your quote today at Progressive.com to join the over 28 million drivers who trust Progressive. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Price and coverage match limited by state law. Okay, picture this. It's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. I can waste another weekend doing the same old whatever, or I can conquer it. I can hop into my all-new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road. Any road. The steeper, the better. Because my all-new Santa Fe is available with H-Track all-wheel drive, so I can hit the trail without a worry in the world. Heck, with three rows and best-in-class rear cargo space, I can pack the whole family in with all our gear. We've got available dual wireless charging for our phones, so we'll never lose touch with civilization, and we won't lose touch with the primordial power of Mother Earth. So which is it? Waste the weekend or do something a little more epic and conquer it in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. We're joined in uh, this portion of our program by Dr. Jennifer Harvey. Um, Jennifer is a writer, speaker, professor at Drake University. Her work focuses on racial justice and white anti-racism. Her most recent books have included Raising White Kids, Bringing Up Children in Racially Unjust America, published by Abington Press, Uh, Dear White Christians, for those still longing for racial reconciliation. Uh, She is a contributor to um, NPR, New York Times, Huffington Post. Uh, She is ordained in the American Baptist uh, churches. She's joining us from her home in the state of Iowa. First of all, it's nice to have you join us on our program. Good morning. Thanks thanks so much. It's really good to be with you. So many different areas where we can go in this discussion, but um, let's start off talking about raising white kids, bringing up children in a racially unjust America. This book, having come out uh, this year, what, what did that mean for you? Well, it's meant for me the chance to be in conversation with lots of parents who are struggling with and thinking about how do we take commitments to equity, commitments to justice, and translate this to raising two-year-olds, three-year-olds, five-year-olds who are white and who need active parenting for anti-racism if we're going to raise a generation of white youth who can do very, very differently than lots of we who are adults now have done in this current racial and political climate. Sounds like quite a big task. It is a big task. It's a generational work. And, um, you know, I have been involved in anti-racism work as a lot for about 20 years as a white person. But even myself, when I became a mother, though I was doing lots of organizing and education in spaces that whiteness and and what it means to be justice committed as a white person in the United States were sort of, you know, constant in my work. You know, when I became a mother, I realized that I too sort of needed a different set of tools and conversations and strategies um, with my own children and that I hadn't necessarily developed those. So it's been really, 
it's a big work, but it's been a work that's been really the work of my heart, I would say. All right, let's tackle a big issue right at the start. This whole Great. idea of color blindness, okay? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And the idea that this is going to, if one practices this, this is going to lead to equity and justice. How do you react yeah. to that? Well, it's, it's oftentimes colorblindness is coming from a kind of well-intentioned place, sort of. Um, but the problem with colorblindness and the reason we need to just really interrupt that notion is that, first of all, people of color have said over and over, our, our identities matter to us. We want them to be seen. We want them to be celebrated. It's not a compliment to say you're colorblind. But also, it's just not neurologically possible. Our children see race, they see difference, they see that it matters in the world. And so colorblindness is better understood as a kind of white silence, where we are just not talking with our children about something that they are navigating from very young ages um, every single day. And so we end up setting them up to not be able to have conversations about race and about racism And one of the problems with that is if we can't talk about racism with our children, which is everywhere in our society, then there's no way to raise them to be anti-racist. And so it just really fails as a parenting strategy on a number of different levels. Do you feel it actually winds up harming kids? You know, it does harm kids because white children who don't talk about race become unable to have meaningful racial dialogue as they get older. And the other reason it fails is that many times when we say to our kids, oh, be colorblind, we just treat everyone the same, or we just value equality, again, good sentiment, what what our kids hear is, oh, see that black person, see that Latino person, we're not going to hold their difference against them. So it actually gives our kids very harmful messages about race, and that doesn't just fail white kids by sort of actually feeding into negative notions about, oh, there's something wrong with having dark skin. That's why we're not going to notice it. But of course, it also failed kids of color because then we are, you know, um, creating a generation of white youth who are not going to be able to be good, good friends, not be able to be meaningful allies with kids of color. So it fails white kids and kids of color. What about that situation? A lot of parents have been through this where their young child, two, three years old, points to somebody of a different race and has this very often very loud comment about the person's skin color. Yeah. Every white parent's uh, nightmare scenario. Our kids, of course, do things all the time in public when they're young that we don't want them to do. Um, So I think that what's very important is that white parents realize we need to first Uh, model for our child what we do anytime our kids do rude things and we actually address the person they pointed at and apologize you know that person may have you know whatever set of feelings about it but we need to say look I you know I don't know if you're bothered by what my child just did but I'm very sorry and then we need to say to our child hey something like yes that person has beautiful brown skin but it's not polite to point Um, as opposed to just shushing them which sort of shuts down the um, idea that difference is something we can talk about. We need to redirect. And then I need to notice, oh, proactively, wow, if my child is pointing, that means I haven't desegregated my life enough, that, that my child is not in enough spaces where all kinds of racial difference are 
uh, normal enough that, that they wouldn't have pointed in the first place. And so I need to get very proactive about saying, oh, we've got to increase the conversation about difference in our home, uh, be in, you know, find spaces, get in more spaces where diversity is more prevalent and, and do all I can proactively to, to take that as information to, to switch up what we're doing at home. The idea of introducing conversations around race for parents of white kids, when should that start? So that should start right away. Um, We know that parents of kids of color start talking about race almost immediately. And um, for white families, that's not the case for lots of reasons, um, including that white adults have a lot of anxiety about that. But our kids, just like we start talking about color and what's in the world and foods. From the moment of birth, we can start talking about difference with them. Oh, look, this person has brown skin and they're African-American and this person has peach skin and they're white. And really just sort of talking in a, in a even the sort of chattery way we talk to kids who don't even understand language yet, um, makes the language of difference in race something that rolls off the tongue. And what that does is not only gets the adults uh, practicing breaking silence, because so many white people in this country, myself included, were raised to be silent about race. And so it takes a long time for that to become uh, something that feels normal. But it also helps our children know that not only is difference something that we talk about, but that it's a conversation that we continue to grow together so that as they have increasingly complicated encounters with race and racism, they know that the adults in their lives are people that they talk about with this because we have all kinds of studies that show us that white kids know that they don't aren't supposed to talk about race with their parents. And so they just don't. And that's a huge problem. So we just need to let it roll off the tongue from very, very young. You write about um, racial chatter, um, basically saying parents can introduce that to even very young children. What do you Mm -hmm. mean by that concept of chatter? Yeah, I just mean exactly what I was just talking about, that, you know, I'm not going to, with my one-year-old, sit down and say, now, let me tell you about this concept of race and racism. Mm-hmm. I'm just I'm just going to chatter the way I do about everything else in my child's life. Oh, look, the sky is blue, you know, and, oh, your mom, she is da-da-da-da-da. And, you know, we teach children by just sort of chattering with them before they are lingual. And so... When they're very young, that's the way I like to think about um, just sort of normalizing the idea that difference is something we can chatter about, just like we chatter about all kinds of things with our toddlers who don't speak yet. Mm. And when we're talking about stereotypes um, and discussing that with young kids, can there be kind of an analogy to how one would handle gender? Absolutely. Um, And so, you know, I think lots of parents already are struggling with um, and working on how do we make sure that, for example, um, we're saying to all of our kids, oh, you know what? Girls and boys have just as much value. Girls can do anything boys can do. Um, We need to do the same thing with race. And, And not, you know, we have to be kind of careful with this because we know from some studies that You know, we don't want to say things like girls can do anything because that sort of that phrasing kind of re-strengthens the idea that girl is this category that's somehow fundamentally different than boy. And that can get used um, in the environment to lead our kids to interpret 
sort of there's so many negative messages about girls that that can actually make them more vulnerable to negative stereotypes. But we want to say things like, oh, look, that girl's a doctor or look, why are there no girls in this? You know, why are there no girl doctors in this story? And and sort of constantly talk about girls and boys in complicated ways. And the same with race. So we want to say, like I, I write in the book about Doc McSteffens. Oh, look. Doc McSteffens is really smart. She's really creative and she's brown and she's an African-American girl and she's, a, you know, got all of these compassionate relationships. And, and so sort of make sure our kids see and hear about, um, you know, African-American and Latino people and um, doctors and teachers um, so that we constantly are working against what our kids see in our very unjust, segregated society, which is rarely or less often um, actual and uh, images of Black and Latino people who are in leadership roles. We need to really work on making that part of our children's consciousness. Mm. We're talking on our program with uh, the author of Raising White Kids, Bringing Up Children in a Racially Unjust America. Jennifer Harvey has joined us uh, by phone on our program. There's so many different areas where we can go in this discussion this whole idea of developing white guilt, would you yeah. talk with us a little bit about about that and, and what's the real implications of that? Well, you know, I think white guilt for any white American who believes themselves to be an equality-minded person and who also recognizes that racism is real – White guilt is something many of us have bumped into, and it's actually a pretty normal, developmentally, it's a pretty normal response. If you believe in justice, but you are benefiting from injustice, guilt makes a heck of a lot of sense. The, the problem with guilt is it often sig- signals a place where white people get stuck, and so we struggle to get through guilt into meaningful, anti-racist action in the world, in our workplaces, in our homes, in our neighborhoods. And so what I think is that knowing that race is a developmental process, part of the reason many of us get stuck in white guilt is we haven't had, certainly we have people of color who are modeling and teaching and insisting we move into action, but many white Americans have had very few white models of what that looks like. And so as a parent, I've realized, oh, if race is developmental, talking about race, teaching about anti-racism from young ages actually supports the developmental process. And so I actually want my eight-year-old to wrestle with the moral complexities. And so say, for example, you know, be teaching her, look, we have ancestors who participated in enslavement and who dispossessed Native peoples. And we also have a few ancestors that fought for justice against those things. And we want to grow in our family grow our work for justice today as part of taking responsibility for what some of the really bad things our ancestors did. And so my child might feel some guilt about, you know, being white and hearing this hard history, but I don't leave her there. I say, you know, this is why we are actively taking a stand for justice in our community today in Des Moines, Iowa, and partner with her in anti-racist action in the world, show her what that looks like, make sure that she understands she can be part of that that helps all any white American move through guilt. And if we can do that with our kids, we're less likely to have 20-year-olds, 30-year-olds, 4-year-olds who just sit stuck in white guilt and never get active for justice. So what would you say to a white parent who, I guess, seems or feels kind of stuck in their own anti-racist development? 
Yeah, that's such a good question because when I was writing my book, I realized I was really talking about where the adults are. We struggle because to, you know, do this with our children often because of where we are. And so I would say I really encourage white adults to who feel stuck get plugged in locally with an organization, especially an organization that is led by people of color who is doing local racial justice work. That's one of the best ways we can get unstuck because we can show up there. We don't have to know everything. We just need to show up ready to say, how can I be of service? How can I participate? How can I support this work folks are already doing? We also can avail ourselves of so many resources, engage all the amazing reading that um, you know, people of color are writing a lot right now about what they need and want to demand from white Americans. Those of us who are parenting and caregivers, we can read that work and really try and internalize what does it mean in my own life. Um, we just we need to reach out and connect with others who are doing this work because there are people doing this work. And just that connection can help us both grow in our understanding and our capacity. And it also helps us feel like we're not doing this alone, which is really difficult if we're feeling isolated. Mm. And the whole idea of, um, you know, teachable moments is something that's very important for uh, parents. It's also very important in the classroom, too. Um, You know, part of your work involves dealing with ethics and teaching Mm -hmm. that to college students. So in the period of time that you've been teaching, which is, I understand, is over a decade, um, mm-hmm. what have you noticed happening to white students when you introduce the topic of race? Yeah. Um, the white students just panic. And so I have students of color in the class who are ready to go. We're like, great, we're going to talk about race today. Let's have this conversation. And white students sort of look like, oh my God, could we talk about abortion instead. That would mm. be so much easier, mm. you know? And And I think that's another reason I I ended up interested in writing this book, because I was trying to understand myself, like, why is this happening? Why are white young people, you know, we always hear, oh, the next generation, this is a generational problem. It's going to be so much better. And as a college teacher, I've been really clear, like, actually, it's not, not with something really different. And so many times I find myself saying to my students after that moment where white students kind of panic. You know, I say, look, you just all heard me say we're going to do calculus. And some of us have been doing calculus since fourth grade. And others of us had teachers and parents who haven't got helped us get past basic math, basic addition. And so somehow we're going to have to figure out how to do math together. And that becomes the work in a way. And when you talk about race, then with a group, a multiracial group of 19 year olds, because they are just not similarly equipped. And we have to address that generationally. It's very important that we do. Racial development, you compare it to physical, intellectual, and emotional development. Mm-hmm. Take us through how, how that works for you. So it's, it's really helpful, I think, to recognize, you know, parents and caregivers already recognize that our children, part of our work as parents is to um, give our children support to develop emotionally in healthy ways. You know, I don't expect my two-year-old not to have a temper tantrum, um, but I do expect by the time she's eight to be able to manage her anger, right? And so racial development is like that. We all develop emotionally. We develop intellectually. We also, if we're living in a world that is thoroughly racialized, which the United States is, we all develop racially. And so 
understanding that I think can be empowering for white parents who feel so nervous about talking about race with our kids to say, look, if you don't talk about race with your kid, um, they're going to develop racially anyway and in some ways that you would not support. So just like I wouldn't leave my child on their own to decide, are they going to eat peas or chocolate? I wouldn't do that because I know physical development is going to be harmed by that. I cannot let my child just be on their own navigating the world of race that we are all just swimming in in the United States. And so I also can then find tools that can help me. There's so much out there that has helped um, identify what kids need to learn about race in the ways that those of us who are just as committed want them to learn about it and to develop skills for intervening um, in racism when they see it on the playground and then in increasingly complex ways as they get older and hit their teenage years and and their 20-something years. When we're talking in this discussion, too, um, you know, you often have a situation where there's incidents of bullying. So, you know, a kid is being mean or treating somebody badly and kids will understand that. Yeah. I guess the question becomes why then should we ask our kids to go beyond that and I guess really be seeking out explanations for bad behavior? And how do you do it in an age appropriate manner? So I guess I'll give you an example of how I think about this. Please. And uh, it's so I one time a couple of years ago when my ch- my daughter was about six, I think, um, watched her at a soccer camp get in a sort of jostling match with a boy and heard her say to him, hey, that's not nice. And she was clearly upset. And after the camp, I asked her what happened. She told me he had cut in front of her in line and said, boys, get to go first. And I said to her, and she said that was really mean. And I said, you're right, that was mean. And I'm really proud of you for standing up for yourself because that was a good thing to do. We, we need to stand up to meanness. I didn't name that this was gendered behavior and that it was sexist. And I was a little, I sort of stood on that the rest of the day. And then I finally decided, you know what, I need to give her that word. And what happened, I think I was afraid to give her that word because I didn't want her sort of going into situations thinking, oh, I'm going to be treated poorly because I'm a girl. But what happened later that night was I said, you know, I want to talk about this again because it wasn't only that that boy was being mean, he was actually being sexist. And I explained to her that sexism is when someone says because of gender that they should get better treatment or that they should have different rules or that they're going to perform better. And I said, the reason I want you to know that that was sexism is because that also means you weren't just standing up against for yourself when you challenged his meanness. You were actually standing up for all girls. You were saying it's not okay to be sexist. And instead of this making her get sort of, you know, despair filled, like, oh, no, I'm a girl. I'm going to be treated poorly. She immediately started to talk about Rosa Parks. And she said, oh, it's kind of like when Rosa Parks, you know, wouldn't move on the bus. And I, and, and I said, yes, it is like that. And then she went on to say, I said, you know, and Rosa Parks was standing up against racism, and my daughter went on to say, oh, and Rosa Parks was black and a a woman, and so that must have been extra hard. And I said, yes, that must have been extra hard. And what happened for my daughter was she saw herself as part of a larger commitment with others to 
equity and justice. And so I think giving our children the language of racism and sexism, what it does is moves them from just thinking this is about individual behaviors. Um, and also it, and it truthfully gives them the understanding that this is a society wide problem, which means that when you challenge it, you are doing that with others and sometimes on behalf of others. Um, and that that is a, and that is a very empowering sensibility. And when we don't give our children the language of racism and sexism, and it, you know, in this case, I'm specifically thinking about racism, they are just, again, they're unable to do that. And they are unable to see the sort of systemic nature of both injustice, but also movements for justice. And so I just think it gives them a lot in addition to just being truthful in terms of helping them understand what they're experiencing. As children mature, get older, what happens with their social circles? So predictably, like across the board, kids start to self-segregate by the teenage years. Middle school is really when it gets significant. Um, And so families will watch children, all children, not just white children, who may happily play along racial lines in the elementary years. Um, Most of our children self-segregate, start to do that in their friendship circles by middle school and certainly by high school. Why do you think that is? Well, there's a lot of factors, but one of the ones that I'm most interested in and I think is really strongly at play simply has to do with if I, for example, um, have not taught my white child about the realities of racism that her African-American friend experiences in the world every single day, um, then as they age and those experiences become increasingly clear to her African-American friend, um, increasingly that, that, that teenager or that, that young person has language to talk about that. If my white young person and teenager doesn't even understand that's a phenomena that their friend is going through, let alone has a sense of how to be an active ally or partner in, in sort of journeying with their friend, even though she's white, that friendship just can't sustain itself. And so, for example, if we know that, you know, African-American kids are getting the talk um, at ages 9, 10, 11, 12, they're learning that their relationships with police officers are complicated. And I only ever tell my 9-year-old, my 10-year-old, oh, police are safe. Go find one when you are in trouble. Then she is not going to be able to navigate a friendship with an African-American peer who understands that police are not only safe, that they are also you know, over that they are also more likely to end up in situations with police where they get, you know, where their their well-being and safety is at risk. So, when we don't teach white kids what their peers live with and go through, they are unable to to stay in meaningful relationships because the authenticity and depth of that friendship just erodes. There are other factors, but that is a big one, I think, in terms of self segregation. In 2016, you took your kids, who at the time I believe were five and seven to a Black Lives Matter protest. Why? Yeah. Well, I took them, um, in part, I've taken them to rallies and protests all of their lives, even when they were really tiny, because I want them to see communities of people resisting injustice. I want them to think that is something you do when injustice is at hand. And I took them, my students were organizing a protest after um, two more African-American men had been killed, Terrence Cruncher and Keith Scott Lamont. And actually, I was just going, and I just said, I'm going. I told them I was going. I told them why, and I said, do you want to come? And they said, yes. 
And this story, I have to say, is one of them been most important in my parenting um, for my own learning because what happened when I um, said I would take them is they asked if they could make signs. And when I, I said they could, and they decided they were going to make Black Lives Matter signs. And when I went to get them to take them to the protest, um, I found them making their signs and my older child's sign um, in green and red with hearts and stars all over it <laughs> said, um, Black Lives Matter. And then she had gone on to write, they matter the same as white. Stop killing them. And then she had written below that, people who are black are. And she had written out the names of two of her cousins who are African-American and her aunt, my sister-in-law, who is African-American. And she had put their names on the sign. And it was this devastating moment for me. And it was also this profoundly gorgeous moment where I realized that my, my, you know, seven or eight year old was um, putting the pieces together that racism is real, that it has real consequences for real people, that some of her most beloveds are among those people, and that she has the important job of speaking up against that. Um, and so it was one of these moments where I thought, yeah, you know, I, I sometimes worry, like, you know, we, we don't want to break our children's hearts. Um, but I thought, yep, you know, white kids need to have their hearts broken if they're going to stay human enough to actually identify with people of color in this society whose lives and hum humanity are really at stake and constantly being undermined in this system. And so it was one of the most important moments I've had as a parent, um, even as it was completely sort of unnerving and devastating all at the same time. I want to close our discussion with um, something that comes up, I believe, actually pretty early on in the book. Would you tell us about the um, admonishment from Ms. B, your teacher? Sure, yeah. I start the book with this story from first grade. Um, I went to Denver Public Schools when we were under mandated busing for desegregation, and this meant that um, in my life, and I'm so grateful for this, my classrooms were lots and lots of black children in particular. And um, one day in first grade, my white friend came up to me outside the bathroom and said, hey, Jenny, we should start a white girls club. And I think I looked a little confused because she went on to say, you know, because there's only six white girls in this class. And I have this very conscious memory of, of having it sort of dawn on me that I never really thought about that, but also kind of starting to look down and thinking, oh, well, you know, she's right. I am a white girl. And just as that recognition, before I could even get beyond that, um, sort of began to sort of stir, our white teacher um, walked, was walking by and she overheard this conversation. And she just snapped it off and said, girls, I don't ever want to hear you talking like that again. And I remember feeling really embarrassed, really kind of scared because I knew we'd done something wrong. But what was scary to me is that I didn't know what we had done wrong. And so I knew there was something bad about this sort of racial noticing that was happening. Um, and so I just kind of, I think I kind of shut down for a long time. Um, I mean, of course, I kept my friendships, you know, in elementary school, but I just, I didn't, you know, myself as a white child didn't have any more conversations about race because all I knew is like we had done something, there was really something bad and scary about this. And that moment for me is so key because it, it was, it's again, a memory in my own journey where I realized a white adult, you know, thinking she was doing the right thing was under-equipped to actually lean in 
and say, oh, let's talk about this, and then proactively notice, like, oh, we need to be talking about the meaning of race in our classroom in ways that could have led to a really different outcome, but instead with another form of white anxiety and silence that kind of shut down um, really important um, race, racial learning for me as a six-year-old. Very interesting discussion with uh, Jennifer Harvey on our program. She's a writer, speaker, professor at Drake University. Um, Most recent book, Raising White Kids, Bringing Up Children in a Racially Unjust America. Thank you very much for your time and uh, sharing your thoughts with us. Certainly the best with your work as well. Thank you so much. It's been great to be with you. In uh, this portion of our program, we are joined by Anna May Duane. Uh, she is joining us on our program. And it should be a very interesting discussion talking with us about the publication entitled Educated for Freedom, the incredible story of two fugitive schoolboys who grew up to change a nation. That's quite a title. <laughs> It's nice to have you join us, first of all. Thank you so much. I'm glad to be here. In your uh, background, you're an associate professor of English, director of the American Studies Program at the University of Connecticut. Uh, You've edited several previous titles, authored Suffering Childhood in Early America. Why this book at this point in your work? Um, It wasn't a plan, actually. Sort of um, this work kind of jumped out at me by accident. Uh, It came out of my other work. I consider myself a historian of childhood. I've always been interested in trying to figure out what it was like to live as a young person in the past, and it's a particular challenge to try to get to those records. Uh, We often don't preserve the records that children make, right? We put our kids schoolwork on the refrigerator, and then it goes away after a month or two. It seems very ephemeral. Uh, And I was just sort of poking around in the archives, and I came across uh, the words New York African Free School in the 1820s, and my ears and eyes opened up and uh, because I was surprised to come across a school for African Americans in the 1820s, you know, 40 years before the Civil War and the Emancipation Proclamation. And in these records were these incredible record of performances, skits, pieces of work that kids from 9 to about 14 had done in the 1820s. And I just started reading their work, and I was absolutely hooked. So to just give one quick example of the sort of thing I found in there, I found portraits of Benjamin Franklin. I found um, addresses to uh, the Marquis de Lafayette. One of the kids got to meet the Marquis de Lafayette. Uh, but there was a speech of a, a valedictorian, and the first half of it was very standard, exactly what you'd expect, sort of, I'm very proud to be here, thanks to my parents, my teachers, etc. But the second half takes a completely different tone. He laments that it doesn't matter how smart he is or how hard he works, because the country is so rife with prejudice, he's never going to succeed. And I was just struck by... Uh, Number one, what was it like to be that kid, to be this talented uh, 14-year-old young man on a stage in front of your parents and benefactors saying, feeling this hopeless? And what was going on at the school that you had both this sort of incredible talent and this sort of incredible anxiety, this sort of doubleness? And then once I started searching the names of the children who showed up in the records, it turned out they went on to do incredible things. So the two men I write about 
one of them was in a lot of these little skits and records, he was a star student, uh, was James McCune Smith, and he is the first African-American to earn an M.D. Uh, the other person who I trace their friends throughout their lives, it's a dual biography, um, is Henry Highland Garnett, who goes on to you know, give speeches to thousands of people and actually is the first African-American to address a sitting hall of Congress, which he does uh, as they send the 13th Amendment, which abolishes slavery up for ratification. So I had no idea <laughs> what I was looking at when I just sort of stumbled on these records and they sort of grabbed me by the collar and, and didn't let me go for 10 years. As you're telling the story, you were departing from what some might view as um, a standard practice when doing uh, something that's biographical in nature. Why did you do that? Right. Uh, so a lot of times I think in biography, we get, you know, maybe the first chapter on childhood, and mm. then we get, we jump on to like the big important things you do as grownups. Right. Uh, <laughs> and that's history with a capital H. <laughs> <laughs> you know, that's the important stuff. Um, you know, and I think like even in the musical Hamilton, right, you get a couple of numbers where the wife and killed children are there, but it's, you know, the big stuff is separate. And I just found that wasn't the case. One thing, I mean, I found them as children, so that for me was a really striking um, difference uh, that, you know, these were children that when they went and gave their school reports, newspapers, you know, national press came out because the stakes were so high. There was so much investment in sort of seeing what they could do. Um, so they were, from the beginning, playing a part in history. And then as I sort of traced their lives, I just realized that their political activism, their professional careers, uh, their, uh, you know, what they did when they were in the halls of Congress was absolutely shaped by uh, both their own children and the sort of sense of uh, they were doing it for a future no one had yet seen, right? They were imagining a freedom, right? It, there's still slavery in the United States until like the last page of this book. <laughs> um, so for them, their political vision was about children. It was, so it seems silly to me to uh, sort of put childhood in chapter one and then leave it behind. And then, you know, just realistically, one of the things I uh, came across in my research that I find astounding is uh, throughout the 17th, 18th, and 19th centuries, the majority of the country was under 21. So it was always a young country, the more children than older folks uh, doing all the stuff that we read about. I mean, the Revolutionary War uh, has lots of what we would consider now child soldiers. Um, so for me, sort of returning uh, or turning a lens on young people seemed the natural and sort of uh, accurate thing to do when trying to tell their stories. There was a certain tension that seemed to be fairly constant surrounding this question of colonization between the two of them. What was that like? Yeah, that was, um, again, something that I found a bit surprising. So this, to really, um, when I started pulling on the contradictions in the school, this is what emerged. So colonization um, what is one of those uh, things we like to think of as a footnote in history. It was this idea, it, um, Thomas Jefferson wrote about it. Uh, it becomes sort of institutionalized a few years later, 1817, uh, and it very much finds its heart in exactly the contradiction of that valedictorian, right? That the school itself had been created by Alexander Hamilton and John Jay and founding fathers, 
out of this optimism that education can make everyone equal, that the country can change and evolve. Uh, and then the second half is right this coming up against a lack of imagination. And what's happening by 1817 is even sort of right-minded, what we would consider sort of liberal-minded white abolitionists can only go so far. They're like, they believe slavery is a moral evil, but they can't imagine a country where there's actual equality, right? So they can't get past it. Okay, freedom, and then what? And they have no idea about then what. And the solution they come up with is colonization, is this sense that, okay, we'll emancipate people and then mass uh, emigrate them uh, to Liberia. The, change, the location changes sometimes. It's Liberia for much of the, of the time, Africa. Sometimes they think South America. But in any case, we're going to give you your own colony. Good luck. We'll press, you know, rewind on history. We'll pretend this whole thing never happened, and uh, it'll work out best for everyone. Uh, and this, uh, this is one of the, you know, in that title, I, I sort of uh, talk about them changing the nation. This is one of the ways I think uh, they do, they and their community, right? because at the school, uh, the principal and the board members start pushing this idea of colonization. They, they're telling the kids in the class, in these records, um, okay, you know, try as hard as you can, but you can't stay here. Right? You can succeed, but not in America. This is not your destiny. And uh, by the 1830s, uh, the parents who, you know, you've got to remember, are in a really um, difficult political position, they're largely impoverished. Uh, the school is a lifeline for them. But they refuse to send their children to the school. They're, they will not accept this version of the children's future. They don't want their children learning this lesson that they can't succeed here. And so they take on some of the most powerful men in New York who are running the school, and the parents win. And colonization is taken out of the curriculum, and uh, black teachers uh, replace the white teachers. And in that way, they sort of change the terms of the debate. Uh, now that my two students were witness to all this, they saw their own parents, their own mothers and fathers stand up and say, colonization is not what we accept. Right? This is, we're going to, we only will accept freedom in this country. Uh, but this is an ongoing debate, and they take very different sides on it. Uh, and it both uh, sort of shapes what is, becomes possible as abolition becomes more and more of a reality, uh, and it splinters their friendship and their lives. This question of what should we do, stay here or should we go? What surprised you most in doing this book and uncovering all the information that you did about these gentlemen? Gosh, um, I was, what, maybe what surprised me most is the, uh, the extent of the community and the political activism among um, African-Americans in the years leading up to the Civil War. I mean, there's uh, several moments uh, with Henry Highland Garnett, who was considered at the time on a par with Frederick Douglass in terms of the power of his oratory, of his incredible charismatic speaker. And so, for instance, when uh, there's this very tense moment later in the book uh, when John Brown, who uh, basically uh, attacks uh, you know, puts an attack on the South in a, 
in this moment, which he hopes will spark the Civil War, right? It's this sort of guerrilla attack on a slaveholding family that he hopes will just sort of become a conflagration, and the whole country is completely on edge, right? This is sort of this incredibly tense moment, and lots of people are laying low because tensions are really high. Certainly, as an African American, you want to lay low because they're just they're trying to wipe out this dissent. They're terrified of insurrection, and Henry Highland Garnett speaks in New York City to a crowd of thousands of people. Uh, they're spilling out of his church, they're spilling into the street, and I just thought, I had no idea that there was this really vibrant, active, brave community of thousands. I mean, we think about the Underground Railroad as sort of this secretive, you know, in the cover of night, two, three people at a time. But there were people from the beginning, you know, whole communities, large portions of New York City and other places like Philadelphia and Boston, where you had a really active, visible community pushing for change. And that sort of surprised me because that's not a story I had come across that often. And the interesting thing about that, I was thinking about this as you were saying it, you know, especially in the age in which we live where, you know, we have all this information at our fingertips, literally in the 24-7 news cycle, et cetera. You think that there was this kind of community, there was this kind of interest, there had to have been communication that tied all this together. It's amazing they were able to pull this off. Right, exactly. In some ways, that you could get a gathering. I mean, exactly. There was no Facebook to tell everybody to be there. Right. <laughs> I know. I think about that a lot. I mean, I think. Um, in some ways, people were so productive, partially because I guess you, <laughs> you didn't have the distractions. But, I, I mean, I think street life was way more vibrant. It was just a lot more word of mouth. And um, news, I mean, a lot of the um, records that I found to do this work, because neither of these men wrote novels or narratives or anything, was newspapers. There was just an incredible amount of newspapers. They published every day. They published tons of stuff. Uh, you know, they didn't have Twitter, but at least my two men, when they disagreed, would get in the equivalent of, it looks a lot like a Twitter beef, uh, where they would just sort of have dueling op-eds. So I think there was this tradition of everybody got the newspaper, families read the newspapers aloud, or you went over your neighbor's house. Uh, so there was a lot, yeah, it, it does, it's one of the ways I think the past is really different and maybe has something to teach us, that there was just this sense of people talked to each other. You got the news from your friends uh, and you, you stayed in touch with a large group of people on a personal level. In doing this book, um, and by the way, we're talking on our program with Anna Mae Duane, who is author of Educated for Freedom, the incredible story of two fugitive schoolboys who grew up to change a nation. What are you hoping that those who read this book are going to take away from it? Ah, that's a great question. I think, I mean, one of the things that I took away from it and that I found personally inspiring, and, and I think in some ways resonates with their own moment, is you know to go back to their beginnings at this school. Uh, these were the kids who the nation did not include. Right, the, the system was designed to not pay attention to them. And their lives are sort of a response to the question of how do you gain power from people who don't want to give it to you? How do you get justice when a system doesn't even recognize that anything bad has happened? Uh, and how do you do it when you don't have 
access to money or standard political power. And you, these, um, in some ways, this is a harrowing story. They uh, go through lots of, uh, you know, hardships and obstacles. But they, by the end, they have done something that no one has done. Uh, they are doctors. They are orators. They are uh, addressing Congress and the president. That, uh, and I think it's largely through community connection, from learning from each other, from insisting on their own worth, uh, and pushing, uh, you know, pushing their own idea of freedom, not accepting what's handed to them. And I think uh, what I find, what I hope people take away from it, is sort of that that's possible. That was possible then, when you know, in the nation in which you, they weren't even considered human beings. Uh, so it's possible for all of us <laughs> to. Um, no matter how powerless we might feel, that there are ways if we rely on our own uh, sense of worth and our own communities, uh, incredible things can happen. Pretty amazing when you stop and think about it. Um, mm. There's so many different things that come up in this book. Let me ask you about a couple of them. Sure. And we'll go back to 1844, um, 45, that period of time. There was an address to the slaves of the United States. Why was that such a powerful speech? Right, that speech, I describe it in the book, because uh, it was very interesting uh, to look at the records and try to figure out what was going on as um, a black hole in the middle of this convention. So again, it was at one of these gatherings. They would have what was called colored conventions at the time, and it was um, uh, African-American men, who would come from all over the country and decide, okay, what political action should we take? What's our best options? And Henry Helen Garnett that year gives the speech, and I call it a black hole because everything revolves around this moment where he gives this incredible speech, but you can't find the speech. And that's because they, were, they found it so incendiary that they were afraid to publish it. They actually uh, debate for two hours <laughs> about whether or not this should be published, that we need to change this. This is too dangerous. Uh, and it's an incredibly, uh, we do have it, they publish it five years later, uh, and I imagine it's fairly similar, but we don't know for sure. But in that speech, he says things like, uh, resist, uh, resist, uh, it is a sinful for you to, to submit anymore. And he's speaking to enslaved people. Uh, rise up, you are four million, you can't be treated any worse than you were already be treated, stop this right now. Throw down your tools and refuse to do this, and it can't get any worse. And uh, this, it seems very few people had ever said this. David Walker um, was a, an African-American about 10 years earlier, had put out a speech like this, and he was dead within the year. Um, this was incredibly dangerous stuff. This is 20 years before the Civil War. Uh, the standard idea of abolition at that time, uh, and including this is what Frederick Douglass believes and every, pretty much half the people in this hall believe, this is too dangerous. We need to change hearts and minds. We need nonviolent resistance. This is too, we can't say, rise up. This, well, you know, there'll be bloodshed. Uh, and so they, they sort of put it under wraps for five years, but he's, uh, what's interesting is sort of tracing the influence of this speech, right, which begin, people say they wept, people never forget it 20 years later, and we see that even from that moment, even though it's not in the text, it shapes the next 20 years. Uh, so when I mentioned John Brown 
who has this sort of attack on slaveholders, which is this incredibly um, powerful moment in American history, he points to Henry Highland Garnett's speech as something that inspired him. By 20 years later, everyone is on board with everything Henry Highland Garnett said, but he's one of the first to say it. Um, and he's just uncompromising. He's like, this stops now. Um, and the world wasn't quite ready for him yet, but I think we, um, it's one of those moments that push everything forward. Mm. February of 1865, um, Garnett stood before the House of Representatives. He was the first black man to address that body. Um, and to say the least, he didn't hold back. Mm-hmm. Why? Well, you know, that was sort of his personality to some degree. He never held back. I mean, that's what got him in trouble a lot of times. He always, uh, did, you know, ran right towards the heart of things. If there was a, a fight to be had, he was going to be in the middle of it. Uh, and I think that at this moment, the war is pretty much over. The 13th Amendment is not passed, but it's um, being sent up to be ratified, so it's well on its way. And I think that maybe they thought this was going to be a celebratory speech, maybe a prayerful speech. You know, oh my, we've come here, the, the, the journey is over. And that's not the speech he gives. Uh, he gives a speech, uh, it, it said, you know, the title of it is Let the Monster Perish. So he doesn't see slavery as a monster that's dead yet. And a lot of it is um, exhorting, he does, exhorting uh, Congress people and the nation to uh, not relax their vigilance, that this isn't over yet. Uh, and he talks about the damage it's already done to the country. And uh, one of the moments I find most interesting is he talks about how slavery and the racism it created has made us weaker. He says it, it's made us uh, vulnerable to petty tyrants and princes who can uh, you know, play on these prejudices and this weakness and these divisions that, that slavery has created in this country, uh, which I think in some ways is uh, still a really prescient uh, observation about the country. He doesn't see it as over. He sees this as uh, the the work that still needs to be done, the damage that has been done, and the debts that still need to be paid. He thinks slavery isn't over uh, until uh, we can... He talks about acknowledging the excellence of all people in our literature, in our churches. Uh, he's, again, he's sort of... They had this idea of freedom of, okay, slavery is illegal, we're done here. And he, you know, as the, both of these men have done throughout their, their lives, they refuse to accept that definition, that that's not the end, right? There's, a, there's more here. We have more work to do as a country, uh, which I don't know. You know, I think people were uh, in that um, chamber were exhausted and thought they were done. And he says, no, we're not. And mm-hmm. I think he was absolutely correct. We're still not done. Now, it's interesting that, as I understand, Smith was not present for that address to Congress. Uh, did the rift between them ever heal? Right. He's very ill by this point. He's within months of dying. He had um, what we're imagining was a congestive heart failure. Mm-hmm. Anna May Duane talking with us about the publication entitled Educated for Freedom, the incredible story of two fugitive schoolboys who grew up to change a nation. Thank you so much. That does it for hour one of our program on the fan this Sunday morning. We've got more to get to after our top of the hour rundown of things in the sporting world right here on the fan.
Radio.com. You joined in uh, this portion of our program on the fan, Space Radio 66, Space Radio 119, on this uh, Sunday morning. Interestingly enough, because this is an interesting date in history, the uh, 26th of July, we'll begin talking about that with the guest who's joining us. We've spoken with us before on our program. His name is Marco Damiani. Marco is the CEO of AHRC New York City, which we'll find out about in the course of our discussion. He's also a member of Nunes Mazdios Nonprofit and Social Services Sector Advisory Council. Um, Marco, first of all, good morning. Welcome to the program. Uh, good morning, Professor. I guess to begin this discussion, a little bit of background, I guess, on exactly what AHRC New York City is all about. We're a family-governed organization uh, that focuses on kids and adults with uh, intellectual and development disabilities such as autism and Down syndrome and cerebral palsy and some other, other conditions. I don't particularly like that term. I think it uh, puts people into boxes, but um, uh, this is the kind of uh, population we work with. And uh, we're celebrating our 71st anniversary. We were founded uh, in 1949 by an amazing a mom named Ann Greenberg who had a son with uh, some significant disabilities and uh, used to keep him at home. And she put a few lines of an ad in the New York Post uh, to get some other moms together for a nursery and her spirit just um, drove a lot of people to recognize the power of um, inclusion and uh, 71 years later we're one of the largest nonprofits in the country supporting all people with intellectual development disabilities. A lot of questions come to mind. One of the first ones is this idea of intellectual and developmental disabilities. How exactly do you explain what that is? Well, you know, on the one hand, uh, we can be clinical because we need to. This is how people access services by their diagnosis. Diagnosis itself has to do with um, a lifelong condition. Um, uh, occurring before the age of 22 that's uh, characterized by significant limitations in intellectual um, and in adaptive behavior. So, you know, you go to see a doctor, what's the diagnosis you get? But uh, I think the key thing here is that these are people um, that in many ways are very similar to us. And uh, we see more and more people with intellectual disabilities on the street, um, in jobs, in the community, which is really good news. A lot of work to do still, but I think um, our listeners today certainly have experience with uh, these communities. Now, I mentioned that we're talking on the date that the Americans with Disabilities Act was actually signed into law. What is, is the significance of that? What does that mean? And give us kind of an overview of what the ADA is all about. I think a lot of people still are in a fog as to exactly what the ADA actually is. Yeah, we can get wrapped up into a lot of the, um, the details. But, you know, I'm going to back up slightly, if I may, and uh, mention that there's a terrific film out called Crip Camp. And it came out earlier this year. Uh, Michelle and Barack Obama are two of the executive producers. It's about a camp called Camp Jenid in the Catskills in 1971. And the camp is filled with uh, teens with disabilities from all over the country. And this, in many ways, was a hotbed for disability activism. The counselors there ended up being some of the leading activists in the disability movement. And the first line in the film is the camper talking to somebody else and saying, 
would you like to see disabled people depicted as people? And they talk about being sidelined in the world, talk about a world that wasn't built for them. They talk about, uh, one guy says, uh, the world wants to be dead. Um, it, it's an amazing film, inspirational and uplifting. And I think in many ways, it's a well-timed contemporary uh, documentary that, that really shows um, the importance of the ADA. Um, 30 years ago, when the ADA was finally signed by President Bush, it fundamentally shifted the civil rights of all of us onto people with disabilities as well. And it's the most comprehensive civil rights uh, advancement for people with disabilities ever been enacted by the U.S. Congress and ensures a level playing field, everything from uh, public access to transportation, buildings, um, employment, other areas. And we all see every day now the impact of the ADA. Uh, you just walk around New York City, you see car cuts, you see ramps, you see elevators uh, with Braille. Um, it's now part of our life in many ways and an incredibly important civil rights action. It's obviously had a definite impact on uh, the lives of people with disabilities in many ways. One of the things you mentioned is this area of employment. Uh, we've talked about this before. I guess, where are we in terms of what the ADA has covered versus I guess, what the real need is? Well, the difference is the ADA has uh, a tremendous opportunity, and it's no question a better world for people with disabilities because of the ADA. But there's, there's a lot to do. Um, we, we have statistics that are actually quite discouraging. Um, only about 30% of people with disabilities are actively in the workforce. I had a job in 2019. Uh, this year doesn't count so much for obvious reasons. Uh, but compare that with the general uh, workforce without disabilities, which is at 75 to 80 percent. So there's a huge gap there, uh, number one. And that definitely needs to improve. Uh, operations are getting better, I think, at more inclusive workforce strategies. But I think the work we're doing at H4C um, is revolutionary in many ways. And we've been successful in getting people into work and also getting into work in places where the public can see them and interact with them. There's a great story of a fellow that uh, that we support named um, uh, Rommel, and he works at New York Presbyterian Queens. And um, he really started the job there as an intern and wasn't doing so great. He was struggling with uh, getting to work on time, but we supported the hospital staff, very open-minded people, and our, and our job coach. He turned that around, and he was the first person um, in our program to be hired at New York Pres in Queens, and has not missed a day of work since the pandemic hit. Uh, he was such a committed employee that he felt, and he saw people coming into the hospital without their families. He needed to be there and support them any way he could. So it reinforces that when you commit to something and when you see um, capacity in somebody, you can really help them realize their own potential. And we've seen that in the New York Pres relationship, another terrific relationship with the Salesforce, which I'm sure our listeners know is one of the largest tech companies in the world. Uh, they have a tower in Detail Manhattan, um, right off Bryant Park, and they employ a number of people with disabilities there that we have assisted them in getting on board. And they are a very strong partner and a very vocal advocate for inclusion in the workforce.
So we're happy about these, uh, these directions that are positive, but so much more to do in realizing the potential of these employees. They can really do a great job and contribute. How do you reach out to? To the corporate community. I mean, it's good to hear about this receptiveness. Well, that's a great question. And one of the things that I don't want companies to do is to do this for charity or pity. Mm -hmm. And, you know, I, it may be too direct to say that, but I'm saying it because I think in some ways that's the way it is occasionally. And now more than ever, we and other organizations like ours have done a good job promoting the power of inclusion, the power of differences in the workforce and, and diversity of the workforce. And if you have an open-minded employer, uh, you can get them to pay attention and see how jobs can be tailored, have more inclusive environment. And we have really terrific staff that know how to work in corporate settings, that go out there and they do their marketing. I use that term in a really positive way. They tell the story of people with disabilities they tell the story of successes. They, they outline the value of having the diverse workforce. And now more than ever, so much stuff going on in, in, in the world and in our country, um, now more than ever, I think it's critically important that companies really see the value of, uh, of an, an integrated and a diverse workforce. And their employees want it. They want to be in a, in a workplace where there are people who are different than them. They can learn and, and, and benefit from different ways of thinking and seeing the world. Marco, how does um, higher education factor as a key to employment for people who have intellectual and other developmental disabilities? It's a great question, and I think if you had asked these questions to people even in the disabilities field 15, 20 years ago, they would be very skeptical that people with, um, especially people with intellectual disabilities who go to college. And, um, we are very proud to uh, now have been operating a program for over 10 years um, called the Melissa Riccio Higher Education Program that puts young adults into college and supports them through that journey. Uh, it's a terrific story. Melissa Riccio was a young lady with Down syndrome. Uh, her, she's the late daughter of Laura and Steve Riccio. Uh, Steve uh, was on the board of, was on our board, now he's on our foundation board. And uh, he was the vice chairman and CEO of Barnes and Noble. And their daughter was an amazing woman and inspired to go to college. Uh, she really had tremendous talent and she died of leukemia uh, before she'd ever get to college. And the Riggios worked with us to get seed funding in place to work with the City University of New York to establish college programs in four of New York City's five boroughs. We have a program on college in Staten Island, King's Road Community College, Hawksville Community College, and the Borough of Manhattan Community College. And now over 100, well over 100 graduates have come out of this program uh, getting into competitive employment. Um, the, the impact, not just on the students, but on their peers has been tremendous. We have lots of uh, training videos that we use, and to hear the students without disabilities talk about their experience with these students with disabilities is tremendous. And we've installed a peer mentoring program uh, with these kids where a non-disabled student will work with people with disabilities, and they're forming incredibly strong partnerships. It's a model program, and now I'm, I'm happy to say we're not the only ones doing this. There are college programs across the country for 
for uh, students with intellectual disabilities. So we are really breaking new barriers here in terms of access to education, which in turn, obviously, is a, is a excellent predictor of success in the workforce. We're talking about our program on the fans, Sports Radio 66, Sports Radio 1019, with Marco Tamiani. Marco is CEO of AHRC New York City. He's uh, kind enough to be talking with us this morning. Sports which follows our 8 o'clock update. Um, what's contact information for people who are listening to this discussion? They want to be in touch with AHRC. Perhaps they can um, be supportive of your efforts, um, want to find out more about the organization. Listeners can uh, reach us several ways. By they can go to our website at ahrcnyc.org. We have a referral information center as well at 212-780-4491. That's 212-780-4491. And our website is ahrcnyc.org. If you go there, you'll see we've um, prominently featured COVID-19 resources. Uh, for the disability community and beyond. We're very proud of the work we've done to try to, to, to tangle with this uh, horrible virus. And uh, we want to be sure that people have access to information to keep themselves and their families safe. We also have, as I may mention, a COVID relief fund. Um, we're trying to build up uh, resources uh, in to be sure our staff have all the uh, support they need to continue to provide supports and services through the pandemic. And as you might imagine, um, our funding streams have been uh, hit by this pandemic as well. So anybody who wants to support us can get information on our website. Okay. That's perfectly in a couple of areas where I wanted to go. One, you talk a little bit about your, your staff. What are the people like who do the work at the HRC? You know, today I say they're heroes. Um, and I mean that. Um, you hear that term all the time. But I, we have over 5,000 staff that work with us across the city, over 15,000 people on a regular basis. And the hospital and healthcare staff through this pandemic have been absolutely amazing, full stop. Uh, we've all seen um, the pieces on TV. We've all heard the clapping at 7 p.m. out the windows in New York City. But this is sort of a forgotten or missed workforce. We were designated as essential workers by Governor Cuomo. These are people who come um, to work every day, even during the pandemic, uh, typically earning uh, a little above minimum wage or best to pay above that. In many cases, we do, but our resources are somewhat limited. And instead of come here, sometimes have college degrees, sometimes they don't, sometimes they're pursuing college. These are typically uh, individuals who have a Social consciousness have a, an interest and a drive to help others be better, to create a better world. And what inspires you most about the workforce that we have is they often go above and beyond. Certainly in the pandemic, we didn't ask. That goes without saying, even before the pandemic, these are people who truly believe that society is stronger and better and more resilient when people with disabilities are included. So much of our work is done in the community, in, in, in plain view of everybody else. And we do whatever we can to not be different in terms of how we're treating people with disabilities, but we want to value the differences. So we're always looking for really great people. We're a large organization. We have career opportunities 
to grow with us. Uh, we have some financial assistance programs to help people get their degrees. Uh, very proud of the workforce that we have here at HRC New York City. And when you talk about this, obviously this field has changed uh, quite a bit over the years. Can you talk about that? Yeah, so I mentioned um, Captionet earlier mm -hmm. um, in the early 1970s. Um, I've been around a while myself and actually started uh, my career right out of college. Um, I didn't work for Willowbrook, but I did work at Willowbrook for a nonprofit. And my first day there, uh, was quite an experience. I walked into one of the buildings with a couple of colleagues, and before I knew it, uh, this fellow came up to me who had a disability, and he just hit me right in the face. It, it just a uh, total punch right to my uh, right to my face. And I'm like, "What just happened?" And the the colleague next to me, who I'll never forget, his name was Jeff, and he said, "Come over here for a minute." And he goes, "Johnny doesn't know you." Um, you got, but he doesn't know you. He got frightened seeing in the face. If you give him a couple of days and, and you have to talk with you and you and him, he'll be good. He'll be a good guy. He won't, he'll never hit you again. I could have gone home that day and said, I'm not doing this job. But I didn't. And I listened to Jess. And as long as I worked um, with this organization, which was FEGS, um, I became close friends with this guy, John. And it made me realize that where people live and how they're treated defines so much about how they see the world and how they behave. And this was just when Willowbrook was starting to close down under a class action lawsuit. There were still a couple thousand people there. And this is a seminal part of the disability rights movement, Willowbrook. And part of the ADA clearly says that if you're institutionalized for some reason due to your disability that's not necessary, that's discrimination. So the, the field has grown up. The social justice narrative is grounded in the civil rights movement. And and I think today the anniversary of the ADA reinforces the fact that we can do a lot of damage in this world and we can do a lot of good and make the right decisions. It's interesting the uh examination that one can do in the years into the ADA was signed into the law. Um, I guess one aspect of discussion too comes from the perspective of the general public as to what the ADA means. Because you know you mentioned earlier about this idea of you, know, you walk around in Manhattan and or girls and you see the curb cuts and various other things that are obvious signs of the impact of some of the changes. But for many people, if they don't have someone in their life who is touched by having intellectual or developmental disabilities, they might be completely unaware of how important the ADA is. Um, how do we I guess get this message out to more people. Well, you know, thank you for today for helping us do that here. I think that activism is a definition active and it should never stop. Any of us can become disabled in any minute. I'm not getting wood right now and you should get away. I am. Uh, but it can happen to any of us. 
who among us doesn't know someone with a disability? And when you begin to really think about it and how lucky you are to not have a disability, you begin to appreciate what society has done so far to empower and support people with disabilities to be who they, whoever they can be. And secondly, it's also, I don't want to say safety next to it, that, doesn't, that has a bad, um, has a bad uh, uh, sound to it. It, 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 it. It's a foundation for holding each other up. And the ADA is only as good as the continued vigilance and ensuring that its provisions are enacted, are practiced, and are pushed forward. And in any civil rights effort, and we're right in the midst of another one right now, as we all know, we're at the intersection of, of, of uh, uh, a, a racial justice moment with the pandemic. And I would make the case that uh, disability also is in, is in the intersection of racism and, po and poverty in this country. And as much as we make progress, we can't forget that any of us can become disabled at any minute, and then what? And then what? So the, the kinds of work that we do at HR Senior City and many other organizations in the country do similar work. I happen to think are one of the best, but many do great work. This is something we need to pay attention to. The nonprofit down the street from your house or your apartment, what are you doing to make the life of your community better? And very often they're doing things you don't know about. And I think the ADA is often, the ADA is often grounded in the work that many nonprofits do. Um, access health, great health disparities among people with disabilities compared to the health care you are have access to, and other elements of day-to-day -day life. Um, so I, I think it's important that we not get too technical, but that we tell a simple story, that people with disabilities are people. They have the same rights you and I have. They often have gifts that you and I don't have that need to be optimized and used for better society. And when we open our ears and our minds and our eyes, we're all better together. I think you're right. Um, and I think you stated exceptionally well. And it's key to have a continued conversation. Uh, because you use a very important term you've used a couple of times in our discussion about not getting too technical. And sometimes when you get too technical, people start to, their eyes start to glaze over and um, you kind of lose them. But when you're talking, from the heart, you're talking about real people, how this impacts them. That's what connects with others very, very, in a very key fashion. I think that's a wonderful way of doing it. Thank you. This idea of um, this home and community services, because I understand this was examined in um, a piece from United Cerebral Palsy. Um, the Keys for Inclusion 2020. What does that show? Yeah, this can be also, but uh, there are, are services um, through the Medicaid program that provide people with uh, disabilities um, access to community supports. People think of Medicaid as just health care for people, and it is. It is health care for people who can't afford um, their own health care or don't get it from their, from their employer. But it also provides a lot of supports to kids and to people with disabilities that go way beyond health care. And these particular programs enable people with disabilities to get support in their community. Um, and there are actually waiting lists across the nation 
to get access to these services. It could be um, uh, a supportive apartment place to live. It could be a, a type of a program that every day we learn new skills. It could be uh, basic uh, health care and home attendant programs, things like that. But there are nearly a half a million people in this country waiting to get these supports and services. So this is an area where we just need to do better. So much has been accomplished, but so much still needs to be accomplished. This is a wealthy nation. And despite what's happening now, we can always use our resources better. You know, the, um, the uh, late John Lewis, Representative John Lewis, who passed uh, just a week or so ago, an amazing person on so many levels. But, but he has this thing that resonates so much for me, and it's make good trouble. And when we make good trouble, we can do amazing things together. Um, and I think that balance of seeing where there is something wrong that needs to be uh, corrected, needs to be made right, um, we focus and we're consistent. And that's what's made the ADA successful, and that's what will make the ADA successful in the future when we find holes in it that need to be patched and make good trouble. We're talking with Mark Damayani, who is CEO of AHRC in New York City. And he's a member of Mayor nonprofit and social services sector advisory council. What was that experience like? Um, it was intense. This, is a, this particular council was assembled by the mayor in the wake of COVID-19. Mm -hmm. uh, it was intended, is intended, to open up New York City as carefully as possible in a variety of different sectors. The sector I was involved in, based on and also public health. And I'm very humbled and honored to be part of this group of people, a lot of physicians, a lot of nonprofit leaders, thinking through in great detail what do we need to do to tackle this virus and also be sure as best as we can that it doesn't come back again. So, so being involved in that process uh, in the mayor's office um, has actually produced some really good results. You know, I feel that our field, uh, the field of intellectual disabilities, didn't really get all the support it needed in the wake of COVID. But I'm feeling better that uh, if it comes back again, I hope it doesn't, that we'll have better access to PPE, we'll be better able to manage uh, quarantining, we'll have better access to testing, things like that. But this is a community that's hit hard by this virus. Many people died that, that, that shouldn't have died. And um, it had a lot to do with us not being prepared and um, the system being overwhelmed. So um, I give uh, credit to the mayor and to the governor. Uh, nobody's perfect. We can all say a few things that could have gone better. But overall, New York has done a terrific job uh, managing COVID-19. And I'm, I'm very happy to be uh, playing a very small role uh, in making sure that we, especially with people with disabilities, protect uh, their health as best as we can. There is some good news about the new school that is scheduled to open in September, as I understand. It's always good to have good news, mm -hmm. um, even, even in the pandemic. Um, we provide uh, educational services to about a 1,000 kids throughout New York City. These are preschoolers and school-aged kids with disabilities that, frankly, the New York City Department of Education um, say they can't educate as well as uh, they ought to be able to, and they refer these kids over to us. And the education department reached out to us and asked us if we could open up the school in Staten Island and fast forward with uh, help from uh, from uh, Congressman Max Rose and from President Tibiato, uh, we were able to find a location in Tottenville, um, you know, a former Catholic school. 
Um, and uh, we're opening in September. I hope we're going to open live uh, safely, and if not, we'll do virtual uh, uh, distance learning as we have been. But we're going to support about, educate about 90 kids there, close to 100 kids, um, many with autism. Um, Staten Island has a very high relative percentage of uh, kids with autism. So we're very excited about being in that community, providing much-needed education uh, for these kids and to support their families. So uh, looking forward to a ribbon cutting in September. And you've had to prepare for that possibility of doing things virtually. Our teachers are amazing. We've actually been doing distance learning now since March. And it doesn't work for every kid perfectly. Uh, that, that's an honest appraisal. Mm -hmm. Not every kid can do this, especially a kid with disability. But the amount of work that our teachers have done with the students and with their families who are at home with these kids has been remarkable. Um, so we've gotten very good at it. We've learned very quickly how to become much more tech savvy. And nonprofits generally are they're fairly okay with it. They're okay with it. But we've ramped this thing up and have really gotten very good at virtual support of people, not just kids in school, but we do a lot of telehealth, uh, tele health. Uh, we're staying in touch with people who are living at home uh, with their parents. We might have a 75-year-old mom with a 40-year-old son with Down syndrome. Um, they're home by themselves. So we're uh, delivering them groceries, we're paying them PPE, we're also doing uh, these virtual connections um, on a regular basis to be sure they're safe and, and we're trying to keep people um, engaged and learning even in, this, uh, even in this pandemic. As you look to the future, Marco, what's on your wish list as an organization? Well, I wish that we can get our priorities straight. Um, I'm feeling more and more that uh, we need to be more outspoken about where we use our resources. Um, I think that the work done by nonprofits around the country has been undervalued, and especially now with the work that nonprofits are doing in the, in the pandemic has been unbelievable. In many ways, they are stitching communities together. I was on a watch yesterday with, uh, with um, Senator Schumer, and um, he said that 18% of the economy in New York State are nonprofits. So in that respect, I want more investment in nonprofits. I want more recognition that the work that we do is, is central to our community. Um, and I certainly want us all to be healthy. I don't want us to work better together. I want corporations to continue to do the amazing work they're doing to involve even more people with disabilities um, on their staffs and to use the expertise that we have around the country in nonprofits to help them do that. Um, and I finally, I want more inspiration for our workforce, and I want more resources for our workforce. The people that have been working at HRC New City and organizations like ours um, are unsung heroes, and they are making people's lives not just better. They are building unique relationships that make our city better, our state better, and our country better. So let's put a little more value in places where we have a better world. And I know we can do it. And the final thought, in terms of funding, um, I guess, responsiveness to um, appeals for funding, um, what's that like? What can you use? 
Well, there's there's several answers to that. I think the first is that office have not priority in the COVID relief packages we've seen out of, out of Congress. It's gotten better. Uh, there have been some more recent packages coming out, and uh, some nonprofits, a lot of nonprofits, are now getting some resources that can need to be more resources. The, the, the biggest gap we have in New York right now is that Congress is not authorizing state and local assistance in any significant way, and that has an incredible downstream impact on organizations like ours. We are way below our usual funding uh, levels, and I'm worried about that. We're doing everything we can to preserve our our cash. We're, we're spending very frequently. We're using our resources wisely. I hope we don't have layoffs, but I think any any, any organization is looking at as a possibility. We need more support from the federal government and from the state. Um, as I said earlier, on our, on our website, there's a couple of relief funds. Um, all that money is going in to support our workforce. We need to pay people additional pay uh, for doing work during the pandemic. We keep on doing it, uh, and we have other resources that we want to push to our staff. So that's a, that's a challenge, and I'm hoping that uh, as the pandemic hopefully recedes, that going into late uh, this year, early next year, our financial position uh, stabilizes. Right now, not we're doing okay, but um, there's a lot of uncertainty out there. And will you mention again the website and also the phone number you mentioned earlier? Yes, it's ahrcnyc.org. That's ahrc nyc org and the number is 212-780-4491, Mark Damiani, the CEO of AHRC in New York City, I guess Thank you very much for joining us, certainly, um, and and also very important to be talking on this uh, anniversary of uh, the signing into law of the ADA and um, happy 71st anniversary to AHRC NYC. Thank you very much, Bob. Stay well. I've been looking forward to our discussion for some time with Ben Frank. Uh, ben is, first of all, a friend is somebody I've known for a number of years. Seems like probably back to, oh, I'd say somewhere around um, the dinosaur age. Um, ben and I first uh, connected. He is the author of uh, Clara's Journey, The Scattered Tribe, A Travel Guide to Jewish Europe, Four Editions, A Travel Guide to Jewish Russia and Ukraine, and A Travel Guide to the Jewish Caribbean and South America. Noticing the trend there, uh, he is quite accomplished, having worked as a reporter, also worked in the field of public relations. I've known Ben as a mentioned for a number of years. Nice to speak with you, Ben. Good morning, Bob. How are you? I'm doing very, very well, as a matter of fact. Good. You know, there's so many different areas where we can go in discussion, but it's also interesting that we're having this chat at uh, this time of the year with Clara's War, which is the second book, as I understand, from the Clara Trilogy. Um, it has been published... Uh, for those who have not heard us speak before, a little bit of background on the trilogy. Sure. Um, Clara's War is the second. first one, as you read and mentioned, was Clara's Journey. Um, it's based on a family story, actually a couple of families, not just one, uh, in which, you know, families tell stories, and stories become important in our lives because it's the tie with past generations. 
And uh, Clara really is based on a, a true story. Clara, by the way, with a K. Um, Clara was my aunt. And as, as many things times happen, we don't talk to our you know, elders, so to speak, until, you know, it's too late or until they pass. But we do hear snippets. And those snippets can make fantastic stories and at the same time remind us of the history is, that has passed. Because we have to learn, you know, the famous saying, we have to learn from the past so we don't make the same mistakes over and over again. Right. So that's why I wrote, I'm, I'm really writing a trilogy because it's based on different families. What was, what was this like for you? Um, putting this together, I mean, not just from the work standpoint, but what this meant, I guess, emotionally for you? Um, well, in a number of cases, it was a little bit hard because some of the people that I wrote about uh, are gone now, um, and I knew them, and I, and I was close to them. You know, in those days, families lived close together. Um, I think my aunts all lived within two blocks of each other. Uh, three of them, and um, so there was a family unity, a family tie, and um, you know, people got together. People went to their houses, let's say, on Sunday afternoon, coffee, cake, those kind of things, or went out, uh, although I think there was less going out and more at home. So it was emotionally uh, kind of reminded me of, you know, my younger days, um, and I had a lot of cousins and we had big families, had big families then. And uh, there's so many stories that I that I put into Clara's War, but I did it from a historical point of view. Um, so and when you really think about the history that has gone on in the last eighty years, you know, this this just past September first we uh, we marked the eightieth anniversary of World War Two, which you know, it was the most horrific war in human history. Mm -hmm. So when you put all that together, family, family experiences, people who went, who went through, you know, the Holocaust and World War II, um, you really have emotion, and you're right to bring that up because it's, it's there. I think sometimes it helps you write it, you write the story, and that's what I'm trying to do in Clara's War. In doing the work and, you know, getting into the whole detail uh, associated with this. I also would be remiss if I didn't ask you, on a personal level, what was Clara like? Oh, that's a good point. Uh, and I'm glad you asked that. That's a great question. Um, Clara was the matron of the family. You know, every family has many families have one person who stands out and kind of quote-unquote, I'm putting in a quote, rules the family. Mm -hmm. uh, she was that type of person. And basically, this is Clara from Clara's Journey. Um, basically, her experiences, I mean, traveling through uh, Siberia in the midst of a, the Russian Civil War alone, Imagine a 17-year-old young kid going alone today across Russia in the middle of a war. And, in fact, 
going to Japan where uh, she was probably the only, you know, um, European gal walking the streets of Yokohama. I mean, this is frightening. How did a kid like that get across a continent, two continents, and then find uh, her father? Well, that's the basis of the story. But she ruled the roost. I mean, she, if, if a nephew got out of line, boy, she called him down, and she told her sisters what to do and things of that kind. She was a strong person, yet kind in many ways. But that's the Clara of the first uh, novel. If I may go on, the Clara of the second is, is different somewhat. It's a different story, um, but they're all related. Um, and Clara of the second novel uh, is a young kid also caught up in World War II. But this is different. Uh, she's married and then becomes a terrible separation. And the Clara of the, uh, the second um, novel, Clara's War, is, is really a different kind of person. Um, her experiences were, were different. Loneliness, uh, danger, you know, that type of thing. She was alone and, had, and a child, her child was born while she was alone. Um, so you, you have different characters, but it all comes down to the same thing, the fight for survival. And that's what, what life uh, in many ways is all about, especially, gosh, if you go through a thing like World War II. Mm. We're talking with Ben Frank on our program. Uh, ben is an author. He's talking with us about Clara's War, which is the second book in the Clara trilogy. And he's joined us by phone on our program. I'm Bob Soldier. I guess one of the thoughts I had heading into this discussion today is, what exactly do you hope that those who read these works what it is they're going to take away from it? I, I think that when, you know, we face challenges, many of us meet those challenges, and I think we all have to try. I think we all try to meet the challenge down deep. And I think that um, in life you have to just pick yourself up, you know, if you knock down, pick yourself, you know, the way the song goes and start all over again. Um, and move on and and fight, you know. Sometimes you have to fight for survival. So I, I think people will take away that. And then I think uh, family unity, uh, struggled, you know, to keep together. That, that comes through, in, especially in Clara's War. I mean, you know, she was alone, separated from her husband. Um, with a young daughter and and really fought and struggled to get back to her husband and all this history is going around her at the same time. So I, I hope that people come away with it with the feeling that uh, you know, life can be tough but we can overcome difficulties. Even tragic difficulties. We can overcome them. Hmm. But that's what I really thought people would like to take away from it. At the same time, it's a good story. I mean, it's a story especially of, you know, danger, separation, love, all that goes into human life today. 
And does the story have a special significance at this, this time of the year? Well, number one, we have the, the anniversary of, um, you know, World War II, which was tragic. I mean, uh, 70 to 80 million people, you know, murdered, died. And, um, but we've moved on. Hopefully we've moved on to a better world. I think that's what the holidays, you know, we think about. And we think about our faith, you know, faith and faith. Um, definitely she had to have faith to overcome what she did. And that's what I tried to tell in this, the story, you know, in the book. But faith, and, you know, and in a holiday time, um, now that's what I think life's all about. What surprised you as you did the work for this book? <laughs> Harder than I thought. <laughs> that's a good question, Bob. Uh, yeah, you know, writing is tough. It's not, you know, I, I mean, there's great satisfaction at the end because, you know, you start with blank pages. All that is true, you know, and and you end up or you hope you end up um, with uh, over 250, 300 pages. That's a good story. Um, I mean, it's like, you know, I, I'm not knocking anybody because I think everybody has to try, but. You know, I, I once had a, an author come come in and say, you know, to my office in those days, and we talked about that earlier, um, and say, you know, everybody talks about writing a, a novel, you know, or a book, and he said, um, but I did it, and I kept thinking of that all the time because it's, it's total discipline, it's tough, it's not easy, um, but if you're dedicated to it, you keep going. That's, I think, was the hard part. The hard part is just sitting down every day and starting. Once you start, then you're okay. You know, you get past the hurdle. It's like anything else. You know, the basketball player, he drills and drills and drills and gets on the floor every day. I'm talking about basketball, you know, trains, trains, trains. And I think that's what life's about. You have to have discipline. All right. Well, you know, that's... That, that will make sense. I think it's a wonderful way of connecting with a lot of the folks listening to us. One of the things that's interesting in um, this publication, too, is you talk about, uh, and I'd like you to talk for a minute or two here about the Anders Army. Sure. What was that like? Well, you see, uh, by the way, that's why I'm part of this book, if I may say so. It's the untold story of a lot of historical beds that we don't know about or we don't read about or are uncommon. Um, and, you know, um, when World War II started, you know, Russia and Germany divided Poland. And in the Russian zone, the Russians took, oh, I would say uh, several hundred thousand at least, Polish Army prisoners, you know, there's the famous Catherine Massacre. And they, they brought them back to Russia, Siberia, the camps. And at the same time, um, a lot of people, civilians, fled. And they fled eastward. They fled to Russia to get away from the Germans. Um, you know, Russia was still, you know, um, at least a, a safe haven for a while, they thought. But... You know, Russia and Germany existed, you know, together for two years, from 1941, 
And Germany, of course, you know, a sneak attack uh, really uh, hit Russia very hard on June 22, 1941. And that began the struggle between Russia as our ally, by the way, United States and Britain, um, you know, against Nazi Germany. But meanwhile, you had all these Poles, who, soldiers and civilians who had fled east, most of them in the POW camps, prisoners, and Russia was really struggling at the first, in the beginning of the war, to beat back the German advance. So they had to free the Poles because now they needed, you know, people, army, men fighting the army against the Germans. So they freed the Poles from the camps. But the Poles wanted, didn't want any part of Russia again because, of course, they had turned against them. So they formed an army, and it was under the command of General Anders. And uh, Stalin, in a way, had to let them go to, you know, leave Russia because British needed forces also to fight the Germans. So this Anders army was formed um, in the east, in Russia, and left Russia, really unbelievably left Russia, went to Iran, uh, went through Iran, Iraq, and they got to Palestine. Um, there are many Jews in that army, because obviously the Jews weren't going to, uh, wanted to get out of Russia also in that way, and they didn't want to be captured by the Germans, so they joined the Anders army. But when they got to Palestine, which was already being settled and advanced as a future Jewish state, they left the Anders army and joined the British army. And the Anders army went on to fight, you know, on the side of the Allies in World War II. So I tell this story because it involves Clara and Clara's war, and that's where the separation started that made this, I believe, a really unbelievable story. Mm. I hope I didn't take too long to no, explain that. No, not at all. But, it, but it's a little complicated, but, it, but in, the, in the context of World War II, it wasn't much, but it helped defeat the Germans, and that was, I think, you know, what, what was important. Where will part three of the trilogy take us, or can you reveal? Yeah, I can reveal it, because it's interesting in both books, and this, I think, creates a lot of interest. And, uh, you know, in families, there's a lot of sibling rivalry. And that was one of the themes in Clara's journey, and it certainly uh, continued in Clara's war. Um, without giving everything away, Clara had a brother. Um, and those two weren't exactly uh, on the same page, so to speak. Um, and yet there were blood ties that kept them in a way together and yet separated them. So I think it's, that was a fantastic story. And it's also based on a family story. So in a way, you know, family stories make great novels. And because they're, they're true. I mean, you don't know every detail, but you, you figure it out. And that's what I did with Clara's War. I mean, I didn't know everything, and a lot of it, I had to understand the characters and the people involved, but I think it came out to a good story. Mm. This experience, this change you? Yeah, in many ways, because I think I appreciate the more now, you know, the relatives 
that many, some of them are past, and I think about them, and I think we all do. I mean, depends how close they are or they were to you. Um, but I think if you remember those that went before you, um, try to tell you something about the world, I think it strengthens you. Very interesting discussion, and I appreciate the time of Ben Frank, sure. who's joined us on our program. Uh, ben talking with us about Clara's War, World War II historical novel, the sequel to Clara's Journey, and uh, part of that Clara trilogy that Ben shared information with us on. Ben, thank you. Thank you, Bob. And you be well. I appreciate it, and have all the best to you. Well, that does it for our program on the fan this Sunday morning. Hopefully you have a great day on tap. This is Bob Solcher. We'll see you next Sunday morning at 6 o'clock. Make way for our charting hour rundown of things from the sporting world. And Rick Wolf is along with the Sports Edge program. Ed Randall is by after 9. You're on the fan. This episode is brought to you by Progressive Insurance. Whether you love true crime or comedy, celebrity interviews or news, you call the shots on what's in your podcast queue. And guess what? Now you can call them on your auto insurance too with the Name Your Price tool from Progressive. It works just the way it sounds. You tell Progressive how much you want to pay for car insurance, and they'll show you coverage options that fit your budget. Get your quote today at Progressive.com to join the over 28 million drivers who trust Progressive. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Price and coverage match limited by state law.